here's a junior high type question. <laughs> I feel responsible for that. So uh, what's with the talking donkey? I, I got to know. The, the donkey what? that speaks. Kelly, that's... Uh, I think it's senior pastor question, Ken. No, that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who invited the junior high? <laughs> the talking donkey. You want to take that one? No, seriously. That's... Ah, <laughs> uh, boy, the quick answer, I think, would just be uh, um, God's, God's going to get his message across one way or another. Uh, and it's kind of, I think, all throughout Scripture, uh, it's interesting to see that the God who created the universe makes sure that when he wants to be heard, he's going to be heard. Uh, and whether it's a burning bush, um, whether it's a still small voice with Elijah in the desert, uh, whether it's... Uh, an earthquake that opens up from the ground and punishes a clan for sin, you know, by swallowing people up, or whether it's a donkey talking, um, God is going to be heard, you know, so I think that's just a uh, quick shot there, you know, we have a big God. It's also kind of too where um, we get used to God doing things in certain ways, and when God wants to get our attention, he does things that are different, and so obviously if a donkey started talking to you, you would start paying attention a little bit more, or if it was a bush that was talking to you, or a tree, or whatever. Um, sometimes in our life today, God gets a hold of us in different ways. I heard a guy one time explain how he fell out of a car going 30, 40 miles an hour as he's sliding down the road, getting his skin ripped off. Did Kip get hurt? Yeah. No, that wasn't Kip. And, uh, but um, he, he felt God talking to him, and he agreed to go into the ministry during that time. So God still works weird ways. So make sure your doors are locked, I guess. Is it? <laughs> um, I've been to a bunch of different churches and, and felt uh, welcomed at some and not so welcome at others based on uh, the, the idea of how the universe was created, and my uh, background is in science, and that kind of gives me a certain approach to how I think the universe started, and I believe it was started by God, but maybe in a different mechanism than other people believe, and it's important to me because it, it's not just a theological question, but a question about um, what, what role reason plays in faith, and uh, so I guess, um, how important do you think the, that issue is of how the world was created? I think the, uh, the interesting th thing there on a, a lot of topics currently is that the debate amongst Christians can sometimes be more heated than the debate between, say, a non-Christian uh, and a Christian. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, kind of opened it with this picture of of uh, a hallway that's got a whole lot of rooms that come off of the hallway. And he says that there's a bunch of, and, and in his mind, those were kind of different denominations and different kind of systems. Uh, and he basically said these guys in the rooms are arguing with each other about who's right, who's wrong. But what they share in common is this hallway, and that's what he called mere Christianity. He said this is the one thing they all agree on, and they're kind of arguing as they get a couple uh, levels out. Um, and they kind of sometimes argue more than others. And Lewis was trying to say, why do I have to pick a room? Why can't I just stay in the hallway? 
And I think the, the hallway answer to this question is, is this. I think it's incredibly important that, that God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Um, for a long time, the debate was between evolution on one side and what's called young earth creationism on the other side. Uh, a literal six days, uh, kind of a lot of um, beliefs that go with that. The earth is very young, the universe is very young, etc. And I think what Christians are, uh, especially science uh, scientists that are Christians and things like that are beginning to say, um, this debate about whether the earth is old or young is not the real main issue here. The real issue is, did, did the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, create or speak into existence the universe uh, and the earth and, and kind of everything? Um, and I think that's where the, the trend is heading, and that's where I'm at, is that uh, the main thing is, is God as creator, not whether the earth is 6,000 years old or older. Um, and so I think we've kind of, at least at this church, said that's not the main issue we're camping on. We're camping on, did God do it? Did an intelligent uh, designer design and create this universe? Uh, or it was it com- just out of nothing? And nothing comes out of nothing. Nothing is what Aristotle said rocks dream of, you know, and nothing creates nothing. And so um, the real issue for us is that. So I don't know if that helps. Uh, you left. But uh, <laughs> um, so maybe that helps a little bit. So It's also been my experience that... Um a lot of times we major on the minor. Not that that isn't a minor issue. It is an issue. But uh, in churches, people get in arguments and disagreements about things that really don't pertain to what are the key issues of fellowship. The key issues of fellowship would be like, what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What is the gospel? What does it take for a person to have a relationship with God? And those are the issues that we have in common because we, we can disagree on, on certain other issues, and we do. And denominationalism has started based on that. Out of, well, I'm going to hold on to these issues. These are what are important to us. And, and yet there's so many things we have in common, and those are the things that should hold us together as believers. And uh, we should leave people room to disagree. I have friends who are highly charismatic, and their view on some things is different than mine. And we just have a great time talking about it in a light. We can make fun of Not make fun, but I guess we make fun. But... <laughs> But you know, what I mean? you, know, if you know what I mean by that, we can, we can agree to disagree on those issues because the things that are really important, the things that are going to get us to heaven, we agree on totally. And so I think that's where the church needs to be as a place where people can come in and have different viewpoints on certain things, but has a solid foundation of what is Christianity and the basis of that. So. Tell me about how our Bible was, was formed, the canon of Scripture? Because I know there's other writings, there's other things that people have talked about. Uh, there's the Apocrypha. You know, in recent, you know, you hear a lot, especially a while ago, about like the Gospel of Thomas, which is kind of a side note. But just how that all got formed, how we carry around the Bible we do, which is those specific writings and nothing else. Uh, the... Uh... How we got the Bible we have today, I mean, it's uh, over a couple thousand years, some 44 authors, uh, maybe even more, um, and it's basically broken into two, kind of the, the writings before Christ and the writings after Christ, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament came about um, by recognized prophets, in a sense, speaking, and it was pretty clear in the Old Testament, if you... If you painted a, a, a thus saith the Lord on something and it didn't come true, then you're, you're a false prophet. 
Um, God's not really speaking through you because God doesn't lie. Uh, and so... And you died. And you died. Um, <laughs> before <laughs> That didn't have a chance to get written down. Yeah. He's gone. Uh, but so the, the scriptures accumulated over a, a long period of time. And so there was a recognized authoritative um, text when Jesus came. And so um, when he referred to the scriptures, he was referring uh, to what we now call the Old Testament. And that was the writings of the law, the writings of the prophets, and it was recognized that these were the men that God was speaking through, and, and what, they, what they shared and what they foretold um, kind of proved itself and uh, panned out to be true. The writings after Jesus kind of are broken down into a couple categories. Those that were eyewitnesses, uh, which would be Peter and Matthew and Mark um, and guys like that. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and then those who were kind of, in some sense, the secretary uh, of of the eyewitnesses. So Luke, um, who worked with Paul and kind of acted as a historian, going in and tracking down different um, pieces of the story and putting it together. Um, and it was actually the first time it shows up, like a list of the actual, this is what is kind of the New Testament was about. 150 to 200 years after Christ, uh, I think it was Marcion, and then the list that, that's kind of the official list, what we got in the New Testament in that order, shows up in an Easter letter by Athanasius in the 300s. And so there was kind of uh, a sense in which uh, you mentioned the Gospel of Thomas and some of these other books. It was the books that were written 100 years after the New Testament books, and, and even later some of the Gnostic texts, which began to force the early Christian community to have to separate out what was authoritative from what was not authoritative. Does that make sense? Uh, the ones that really go back to the time of Christ and were recognized from the very beginning as being uh, the ones that had authority from those that were written much later and had really nothing to do with Christ, coming out of a community that didn't really, um, it was more of a blend with Greek philosophy or something else, but didn't really descend from the time of Christ. Um, those Gnostic Gospels, you hear a lot about it today, the Gospel of Judas and kind of all these other things, have really no Jewishness about them. And Jesus was a, a Jewish man. He was a rabbi, uh, born into a Jewish uh, culture and worldview and everything else. The New Testament documents are, are very consistent with the Jewish line of thought. And so when you get to these Gnostic Gospels that were written 100-some-odd years later that are, that are Greek, I mean, they're Greek ways of thinking. There's really no kind of Jewish ideas in them. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of a, and that's a side, I'll, I'm sorry, that's a side note. <laughs> um, but so what happened is these, these alternative Christianities, alternative gospels, alternative texts forced the church to have to, to kind of define what was from the beginning, what is recognized as authoritative. And so those lists were always there. And then, uh, but it was kind of funny, there was never really like a council, it's just everyone knew kind of what the Bible was, and it was the fight in the Reformation era, the 1500s, that really forced the, the Protestant churches and the Catholic churches kind of once for all to, to kind of settle the issue. But up until that point, most people just kind of had this idea of a received, the received books this is just what we all agree on. Uh, so kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if you want to add to that. Well, the only thing is like the um, people that sat down and tried to figure all this out, they had a kind of a... Um, a rule of thumb that when in doubt, throw it out. And so it's kind of like if there was any doubt in their mind that this was authoritative or inspired, then they just basically didn't include it um, because they took what they did very seriously. 
These were godly people who knew what the battle was going to be about, and so therefore they had a, a list of things like Ken was talking about. You know, was it written by somebody who was an eyewitness or somebody who was authoritative like Paul who claimed inspiration? Um, and, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, the same thing. Was it written by, you know, somebody who was a prophet who was noted to be a prophet? And so they kept all those things in mind when they did that and came through. Um, so that's just kind of what they did. Um, so I think pretty much just summed it up. Yeah, there's uh, one more thing kind of just on the Gnostic Gospels because it's a hot topic today. You can't pick up a magazine without reading about it or watch kind of some uh, documentary without kind of running across it. The idea is simply this, is as we're unearthing the Nag Hammadi library, different things where we find books that we already knew existed, we just, you know, we didn't possess them. The Gospel of Judas We've always known uh, through Ignatius and others that there was a gospel of Judas that was written in the 100s, um, not by Judas, but just attributed to him. We always knew it existed. We never just had a copy. So that was kind of the issue. So, so what is happening is people that think uh, Christianity's truth claims are, are bad and, and not good for society, uh, etc., they like this because what they can kind of do is just muddy the water by saying, look, we've got all of these different Gospels, and they all kind of say different things. And so what we need to do is just throw up our hands and just say, you know, uh, we need to treat this stuff lightly and not be going around saying that it has authority. And it's kind of like in a courtroom if you just ran in a whole bunch of witnesses and just said, no, they're all saying different things, and so we just need to throw up our hands and throw out the case. What a judge would do is, no, wait a second. Um, these people that we interviewed first were eyewitnesses. Um, these other people don't even know the defendant. They weren't even there. They just heard some hearsay. They just, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, they might be coming in and testifying, but their testimony is not on the same level. It's not relevant. It's not germane. The second thing that's done is if you're trying to muddy the waters and, and kind of undercut the authority or the credibility of Christianity, um, you have to make these, these other gospels look very appealing. Well, that's a form of Christianity that's a lot better than the form of Christianity that's out there. Uh, and so what is unfortunate about all of this is you only hear some of what's in these Gospels. And so these, these lost Gospels or Gnostic Gospels are portrayed as they're more about spirituality, they're more about love, they're, they're not like the Christian Gospels that are really exclusive, etc. Well, um, two points and then I'm done with that. The Gnostic Gospels, their view of creation, again, coming out of Greek philosophy, is that, that matter, this world, this earth, uh, you and I, everything that we, you know, around us is evil, corrupt, and bad. And it's not redeemable at all. We have to be removed from this, you know. And the, the Jewish view, the, the Hebrew view of creation was that even though it was bent and twisted and it's a little bit messed up, it's redeemable. And God you know, wants to recreate the heavens and the earth and, and get them back uh, to a state of purity. And so it's really interesting today with the environmental movement and all these other things that, that the Gnostic Gospels basically say, forget it, forget the earth, it's corrupt. Just, you know, there's nothing good about it, why even waste time on it is what you're going to get from the Gnostic Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures say it's worth, um, it's worth putting time and energy into, we're stewards of it, and it is a good thing. Um, so it's kind of counter what pop culture would tell you. Second thing is the role of women. I think it wants to, Da Vinci Code, different things like that, want to portray the scriptures here as being kind of uh, male totalitarian and against women. And these Gnostic Gospels are very pro-women. 
Um, and I think that's, again, just a huge perversion. Jesus, Paul, uh, what they did in Christianity with women was remarkable. Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist uh, and is not a Christian, um, goes back to the rise of Christianity and says one of the reasons it exploded was its appeal to women uh, in the Roman culture and stuff like that, that it gave such status and dignity um, to women that it was able to grow really fast. Uh, the Gnostic scriptures, even in the Gospel of Thomas, which was mentioned, um, talk about um, wouldn't you rather they be sons? And, and uh, uh, the Gospel of Judas says... Um, if the, if the women become like the men, then they can be saved, you know. Or, I mean, it's, so it's a real subjugation of women, and you're not going to hear that kind of in the, the magazines or on TV, et cetera. So just a side note there. Yeah, and how it's kind of portrayed, like, with our culture is I have a, a, a young guy that I work with, and he's a highly educated guy. He's going on to grad school. And every Monday night, um, it's kind of fun at where I work that we put the kids to bed, and then we watch 24. And... Uh, <laughs> And so every Monday night, we have a couple of the uh, students that are on the higher levels that get to stay up, and we're watching 24. He has a, cr- a question about Christianity for me. Every Monday night, he asks me, Kill, I got my question. So uh, last Monday night, his question was, do you really believe Christianity is the only way to have a relationship with God? And the reason he asked that question is because he, you know, he's, he reads and he knows what's going on. And, and like Ken was saying, there's so much out there of, let's, why can't we all just b- get along? Why can't all religions just, you know, if you believe in God, isn't that good enough? doesn't matter which God you believe in or which religion. We're all trying to get to the same place. And kind of the false gospel, they're trying to undermine Christianity to basically say, hey, let's just all kind of, you know, there's things that are wrong about it. Well, things wrong about every religion and so on and so forth. And so I said, well, I'm just going to tell you straight up, here's what I believe. I believe Christianity, it's a narrow view. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. In other words, there's only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through Christ. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the New Testament teaches. That's the basis of Christianity. And he goes, wow, I thought you'd say that, he said, but, <laughs> which I was glad. <laughs> but still, that, you know, a lot of people, they don't even understand. They don't see that Christianity, when, when we come down where we say it's a narrow view of how to have a relationship with God, they become, they become offended. How can you be so arrogant to think that you have the only way to have a relationship with God? And I just said, hey, I didn't make the rules. I just follow them. This is what it says. And I, and I believe it wholeheartedly. So all that undermining is trying to get us to kind of be, let's all just kind of be together. Um, like that one lady said on the video, it's, let's just, can't we all be spiritual and get along, that kind of deal. And Christianity clearly is a narrow view on how to have a relationship with God. So I think that kind of you know, slaps us in the face, but we have to be able to stand with that and say it is a narrow view. That's just what I believe. So, Okay, so my follow-up question to that that I was sitting thinking about is the view of heaven and who's going to be there when hopefully we all get there because there are so many different traditions um, and people along the way with Judaism, Catholicism, different um, beliefs and everyone believing that they're doing what they need to do to get to heaven. How do you feel about that? And do you think there will be other, I don't know, traditions um, or people in heaven that um, besides just those of us that are, you know, wholeheartedly Christian Christ followers. 
this is the, the kind of question that gets pastors into trouble. Um, so if I don't have a job tomorrow. Uh, you want me to answer it then? You want to go? Because you'll still have a job. And I don't go to church here, so yeah. <laughs> if I screw it up, you can put the pieces back it. together go then. Well, one of the things that, um, you know, you, you talk about all, all the other religions of the world, you can really sum them up into works-oriented. In other words, you're going to get to heaven, you're going to get to wherever you want to get to by, be, by attaining certain levels based on your good works. And so if you look at God in heaven and God set it up being, basically saying, to, to be in heaven, you have to be perfect. And outside of Ken, I don't know anybody else who would get in. And... Uh, you told me to say that, Ken. So, I mean, what are you looking at me funny for? You weren't supposed to say that part. But. Yeah, okay. But in other words, um, if, if you have like a ladder, and this ladder is the ladder of good works, and perfection's at the top, and if you start thinking that through, like, well, where would you put yourself? Well, you know, if you take some of the great people, you know, who've just given themselves over to service of, of mankind, you take like Mother Teresa, where would you put her? You take like Billy Graham, where would you put him on this ladder? And then you say, well, where would I put myself? It's a ladder of good works. No matter where you put those people, you can never put them at the top, which is perfect. And so God, looking down upon mankind, said, hey, you know, perfection is what it takes to get to heaven. And nobody's perfect. Therefore, I'll have to come up with a way, a plan. plan was created before mankind was ever created, that Christ would come, who was God in the flesh, become a man like us, live a perfect life, being God, he was perfect, being hum human, he was just like us. Being God, he had to be God to be perfect. Being a man, he had to be human to die. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again as a sacrifice for all of man's sin. Therefore, the only way to attain perfection is not by good works, which, which is religion, because nobody can be perfect. Nobody's going to get in. If that's the rule of thumb, if you can earn your way there, nobody's making it. And so through faith in Christ, we have forgiveness of our sins, and that's the basis of Christianity. So when God set the rule, God also said, hey, this is how it's going to be. This is what it takes to get to heaven. Jesus said, hey, there's a broad road that leads to destruction, but the narrow road leads to eternal life. If you study the sayings of Jesus, Jesus clearly taught there is one way and only one way to get to heaven. And since he is the one who's been there and came back, he's the one who set the whole thing up. He's the one that said, in my Father's house are many places. I go, I'm preparing a place for you. It's kind of like, you know, that is the way. That's how God set it up. And all the other people, and, and there's people who have just so committed themselves and given themselves over. You respect them highly for their belief and how they totally self-sacrificed their life based upon what they believed. But if they believed incorrectly, then they're not going to make it because it's not based on good works. It's based on what God did for us on the cross. So therefore, when it comes to those who they're going to get into heaven, as, as I view what the Scripture clearly teaches, it's those who have asked Christ to come in and forgive them of their sin. Those who have accepted the fact that they're not going to get there by good works. They're going to get there by faith through grace. And the other people um, are not going to get in based on that, based on the fact that being good, you can never be good enough. So that's kind of how I look at that. The way I'd, I'd kind of put some of that is God... Uh, the word holy, which is always used of God, literally means, uh, you probably know the pronunciation, ah, anyways, um, <laughs> Old Testament was, is basically set apart, okay? And so New Testament uh, concept of holy, it's just always set apart, it's perfect, it's pure. And so what I would say is this is like white paint. God is white paint. And what, what I think Kelly is saying is even Mother Teresa, it doesn't matter who it is, 
if there's any sin in your life, it's like, you know, so, you, you know, if you're pure, you'd be white paint. If there's sin, there's like one drop of, of black paint, okay? And you all know what it is. Like, you can just put one little drop of black paint in white, and it's not white anymore, right? It's not pure. It's like some form of, of gray or light gray or whatever. And what God is saying is to get to heaven, to be in my house, to have that fellowship and that degree of unity that's, that's like I have with my son and all this other stuff, it means you have to mix with me. And I can't let you mix with me if you're gray paint and I'm white paint because I, can't, you know, I, can't, I just can't have that happen, you know. And so the whole idea is Jesus comes and, and he is now able, doesn't matter if you're it was, you know, pretty black paint or, or just a light shade of gray, he died so that you could be cleansed. So that in Christ, you could be made pure so that you could mix with God. Does that make sense? Okay. And so the idea is the emphasis is on Christ, not on me. It's, it's Jesus did something so that I could be pure and have fellowship with God, be united with God. Now, here's where it gets hard for me is, uh, is anyone that's going to be mixed with God is going to be, uh, has to be pure, and they're going to only be pure through Jesus. Um, the hard thing is what goes on in someone's head that has that happen to them. And here's where it's just God is judge, and, and I've never really wanted to be on jury duty um, ever. Uh, and I don't want to be on jury duty. And so I kind of leave that stuff up to God, figuring all that out. But here's the, here's the things that are difficult for me. Um, babies that die, you know, that don't know Jesus like as a concept, don't have the ability to rationally put their faith in them. Uh, those that are that are uh, mentally handicapped in such a way that they don't have the cognitive abilities to to grasp fully the content of Jesus and, and these things again. And I guess there's just some there's some gray area out there that makes me say um, we're in a sea and we're drowning and God is going to save us and yank us into the boat and the life preserver he's going to throw out says Jesus Christ on it and if by God's grace I have the the, the rational capabilities to swim to that uh, little life um, ring and grab it and be pulled out uh, it's God's grace if if somebody like I was saying kind of these examples is floating unconscious in the water and God fishes them out um, I'll, I'll get to heaven and say isn't it amazing that God in his grace fished that person out but he did it with what Jesus did. He was able to do that because of what Jesus did. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, there's questions there that I think are hard. Uh, and I don't know if I have all the answers on some of those. But what I am going to stand firm on is if someone gets pulled into that boat, God pulled them in with a life ring that says Jesus Christ on it, um, whether they were unconscious in the water or whether they were conscious. So. And some of those, like Ken was saying, the gray things, I totally agree with the babies or people mentally handicapped. It'd be like, um, if you study God, you're going to find that God is holy, um, God is just, God's loving, God's all of these attributes. And sometimes I just have to say, you know something, just like Ken, I don't know the answer to all these questions, but I know what God's like. And God will do the right thing. He will do the holy thing, the just thing, the loving thing, because I know the character of God. And I'm going to leave that with him. He'll take care of that. And by faith, I just have to trust that not necessarily having every answer answered in my own mind. I'm not sure if you heard, but um, apparently Jesus forgot to take his bones with him. So you can <laughs> take that and run with it. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys watched the 
uh, was it on National Geographic or Discovery on Monday? Uh, the Jesus Tomb, and um, James Cameron, who's the director, was the director of Titanic, kind of helped produce the documentary. Uh, and what's amazing to me is it's, it's another one of those things that the chief archaeologist uh, on the site that even was in the documentary says, well, this was, well, of course, this is just all about making money. You know, this stuff isn't, you know, and he even says, you know, to James Cameron's face, this, this isn't, this doesn't wash out. So what's interesting is the, the USA Today, National <laughs> Geographic, basically every major kind of journal that, that talks about these things just mocks it as kind of being ridiculous. And what it is is for a 70-ish a year period in uh, Jewish history around the time of Christ, they had what was called ossuary boxes. Um, so it was like a stone box, and they would put their bones in there because the belief was when God comes back and there's the resurrection, you know, he, he's going to need your bones to put the, you know, your body back on them kind of a thing. Uh, and there was a cave found 20 years ago that had uh, some ossuary boxes in there, and it had Joseph's name, Mary's name, uh, you know, Jesus' name, another Mary's name. And the idea is that's Mary Magdalene and um, and because Jesus was married to her, et cetera. Uh, and the argument basically comes down to they were trying to make a case out of DNA, but there's nothing to compare the DNA to. Um, all they were saying was the DNA in the, Mary, the one Mary's box and the one in the, the Yeshua, which is a very common name, it'd be like John, you know, very common. Um, they didn't match, which means it had to be married people, you know, which again, doesn't, it doesn't prove anything, just that those two DNAs don't match. Uh, and then they were probabilistically trying to say, the chances of getting all these names in the same place is just amazing. Um, what, one of the things that scholars really have a hard time with is you were buried kind of in your home, home region. And the idea is that uh, the time, at the time when Joseph died, Jesus certainly wasn't a prominent figure. Um, and these ossuary boxes are basically high and upper middle class kind of a deal. Um, Joseph most likely would have been buried near Nazareth, not down in Jerusalem. I mean, there's just a lot of problems with it. But again, it makes great money. <laughs> I'd say story, but it's really about money. So, Junior had a question. Uh oh, it's you. Does God change his mind? Ooh. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a big debate, actually, if you want to get to the upper levels of theology. Junior higher. Junior higher. <laughs> uh, um, no. <laughs> Do you want to elaborate? I'll just say no. That's good. We'll go with That's that. good. Um, I just say God, um, Scripture clearly teaches that God is not a man that he should lie. And so if you think like changing your mind's lying, which it's not, um, does God relent on things? Yeah. There are examples in the Old Testament where God relented on doing something and that he was going to do a judgment upon somebody. Um, so, um, but like when it comes to like the spoken will of God, he doesn't change his mind. When it comes to like, well, this is how... The gospel is going to be. God does one day he doesn't wake up and say, nah, you know, I think I'll change it now. I think I'll just let this happen or this happen. And those specific statements of God, God doesn't change his mind. Um, justice, right? Yeah. Nick, it's Nick. Okay. Um, you know, one of your parents probably says, you know what, we're not going to go out to dinner tonight because you didn't clean your room. And you're like, oh, I'll clean my room, I'll clean my room, I'll clean my room. And then if you go clean your room, then the parents 
like, okay, we can go out to dinner. But your, your mom and your dad was purposely telling you that because they, they were trying to help teach you, um, you know, or guide you. Does that make sense? And so, but they knew all along they needed to show you that there's consequences for your actions. If you don't clean your room, you can't go to dinner. Um, and so you can look at that and say, well, gee, the parent changed their mind, but not really. The parent knew all along what he, was, he or she, your mom or your dad, was, was doing with you to try and, try and teach you. Does that make sense? And so I think that the times in the Bible when it looks like, oh, well, it seems like God was going to say he was going to do this thing and then ended up doing this thing, um, I think God, if you treat him as a parent, he knows what, he's, what his purposes are, and those don't change. So, Brandon, this one's for you. I'm uh, Hallie Groza, and I, first, a couple of things. I like the video very much. I hope we meet some of those people someday. <laughs> uh, second, uh, in light of the persistent fact that tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people lose their lives, you know, we see it in the news all the time, uh, instantaneously. Doesn't it seem, that's a leading question, uh, that there is a dimension to life and to death that we are not privy to? Uh, I, I'm a big believer that um, everything's spiritual and, and we, we start as kids knowing that um, and then somehow we become we lose that sense of just understanding that uh, one of the real interesting fields of study in the last 30 years um, that kind of helps with this is what's called near-death experiences and and so over a, a good enough period of time they've been able to document cases that are just mind-boggling and kind of baffling of people whose brain waves are completely uh, gone um, who have been, you know, in a sense, dead for a number of minutes, um, and the things that they'll report if they're resuscitated. And some of them are things that, that, and these are kind of been in journal articles and documented and stuff like that. I don't have any with me. But things where, how could that person have known that? You know, um, and what they're claiming is they, they were able to see it, um, you know, after kind of they'd flatlined, they knew that on the windowsill of the 10th floor there was a red shoe, and they didn't understand why there was a red shoe. And, you know, and doctors kind of going, what? You know, and then they go look at, into it, and it's like, well, there's a red shoe on the, you know, it's like, how, how did they know that? And so it's kind of really, I guess I just leave it at the level of really interesting. Um, some of the things we're learning from near-death experiences just about um, what, what can happen with the spirit uh, or the soul, um, in some I, sense. I think, I think I, what my question is okay. there is looking at and questioning that there is a great possibility that God's view of death is very different from ours. I think that's what I'm saying, that that is the dimension that he, that we are not privy to. And when we, we try to answer it all neatly, it doesn't particularly ring true for me because I don't think it's that neat. I think what is neat is the revelatory experience of God in our lives. I think that is incredible. That, to me, is miraculous. But when we move past that, we complicate it. It gets complicated by, the na by our own natures, by our own neuroses, and it gets complicated by the church because the church wants to do this 
And I don't think God is this. I think God is huge beyond our understanding. And so that question's always in my, it has been in my mind for several years, just what is God's view of death? I don't think it's the same I agree with as you. ours. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I and that, anyway. Yeah, the one thing, too, is, you know, like, there's a lot we don't know. Um, we clearly know, though, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if you're a believer. And so that instantaneously when you die as a believer, you're instantaneously in the presence of God. And so how that all takes place, I don't know. I've never been there yet. I've been close a couple times lately, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I think but, I, Isaiah says, yeah. you know, his ways are higher than our ways. And I think there's a lot that is beyond our ability to comprehend. And I agree with you, church, um, we have to keep struggling as a church and as church leaders to say uh, the idea here is to help expand people's minds and to to show them a God that's bigger than what they can grasp, not to week after week try and put God into a box where all of the math equations work out Um, because they don't always always work out for us because we don't always have all the variables. Does that make sense? So, yeah, I do think God's view of death is totally different than ours. I'll just leave it at that. So, Hello. Um, my name is Aaron Everson. I'm visiting. Um, I went to church in Prineville, and I came late. My, my family never talked about God, so I came late to church, and it was on my own. Um, but I've noticed something that in church, and I worked with the youth ministry for a while, that um, it's kind of a hard heart towards um, the defense of the faces and apologetics, things like that. And it's really frustrating for me because that's kind of what got me on the ball to realize that there is God. And um, especially going to college, I live in the dorm, pray for me. <laughs> um, that, you know, we're losing a lot of brothers and sisters just because when someone asks them, like, you're, like what's happening now, a hard question, they're just, uh, I, and they can't say anything. So what do you think the church can do? What do you think um, people can do for themselves to educate ourselves so that we don't have the, the, the mumbling, uh, I don't know. Because <laughs> I think that, that really cripples us into being stereotyped as people who don't think. We just go to church to get our questions answered for us, and Jesus never told us to do that. And so that's just one question I was asking. Like, what do you think the church can do for that? Uh, you know, a big thing for me is just a similar experience growing up, just thinking there wasn't, that faith meant going, and maybe some of you have experienced this, but faith means going and getting in a corner, closing your eyes, putting your fingers in your ear, and going, I don't want to have to talk to anybody or hear anything because I, I don't know how to reason out any of this Christian stuff or God stuff. And, and I think that Jesus told us if you, if you seek, if you, if you look, you're going to find. Um, questions are okay. The, I mean, that's all Jesus did was field questions. I mean, he went day to day kind of doing this. Um, and so what he taught is really summed up in, in that great phrase. The best thing in life um, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You see, um, nobody's glorified. God isn't glorified by muddy reasoning and thinking. Um, and so I think he meant it when he said, love God with your mind. And I think that if we're able to apply ourselves hard work and study and know the scriptures and even wrestle with God and try and, and, try and at least come to some sense of you know, peace in our hearts on some questions to be able to give an answer. And Peter even says that, um, you know, be ready to give an answer when people ask you, well, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in that? Why do you hope like that? 
And so to be ready to give an answer means that you've thought through those things. And so I think it begins with church leaders saying, um, we have to value the intellect. We have to value the life of the mind. We have to be able to put it forward. Young, young uh, sons and daughters need to be able to catch a vision for being a Christian doctor or a Christian lawyer or a Christian filmmaker or a Christian scientist, believe it or not, you know. And to be able to go into those not areas. A, not a Christian scientist. Not a Christian scientist. <laughs> uh, but to be able to go in those areas and, and love God with, with their mind and their pursuits. And then secondly, I'd just say um, at Antioch, it's, that's a huge thing for us. And so we've got Rick Gerhardt, uh, who's um, really into apologetics. He's a great guy. He's in here somewhere. Uh, and he's doing a Sunday school class, if you haven't been there yet, on apologetics. Uh, and so visit his blog or or look at the articles he's put online, or talk with Rick. Rick would meet with any of you, and, and uh, he's a great one for asking questions too. So, yeah, I think too. Uh, one thing you know that I don't go to Antioch. But one thing about it is they definitely you know are geared toward that way, toward you know apologetics and giving answers and giving Christian things to think about. Um, the balance on both sides of that would be when it comes to witnessing to people is sure you need to have you know answers to some of those questions and be prepared and study and know those things. The other side is. No one ever comes to faith in Christ unless the Holy Spirit doesn't remove the blindness in their heart and draw them to Christ. And so there's two sides to that coin that, hey, all the answers in the world aren't going to change somebody's life. They're important. They help. Like you said, those things brought you to a faith in God and then led you to Christ. But on the other side, you, you need to understand, too, that the Spirit of God has to supernaturally work in somebody's life to draw them in. And so they work together. I mean, God's going to use a lot of things. God's, you know, um, not just using one thing. He, you know, we do need to have answers, but we also need to rely on the fact that, hey, it is through the Spirit of God, God working in that person's heart to draw them to Christ. And so both those things are important. These will be our last two oral questions, and we'll go to the written ones. A uh, follow-up question to the does God change his mind, brought on by your answer, which I've heard that kind of idea a lot. But it makes me question petitionary prayer. Uh, prayer. But you'll keep your job. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think prayer, you know, I, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, and, and the last book that he wrote himself, you know, there's a lot been published since his death, but it was a book called, it's just a fictional book, but called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, and he wrestles back and forth, and, and Lewis was never able to really, I mean, the, the man prayed hours a day, but was really unable never able to reconcile this whole idea of, you know, God has his will kind of set versus um, ask in my name and I'll give it to you. And uh, that was just a big hangnail for Lewis. And I'd say intellectually, it's a hangnail for me. I can't give you the answer to it. I know that I've experienced that prayer works. I experience it regularly. And so I, I've, you know, I see it in scripture as, as God counseling me to pray with a belief that he'll move and I've seen that work out, and it's a good thing. And so I just trust that it does um, and just leave it at that. But, yeah, that's one of those difficult ones to resolve. Sorry to not give you an answer. So, How's it going? It's going good. Hey, I've got a question uh, that's related to um, secularism versus the, the Christian camp or, or God's elect uh, sons and daughters of God. I've grown up in the church, and I've always had this view of you've got God's people out here, and their achievements are planning churches and success in, in the missions field and revivals and just spreading and, and, and broadening God's kingdom on the earth. And then you've got the secular camp, and they're looking to 
cure cancer and make it to the moon and just, you know, spreading human achievement and, and broadening human achievement as it grows throughout the world uh, and in the solar system even. Um, I guess for me, it's like I look at, at what human technology and, and, and growth and understanding and learning as it, as it has progressed in the last hundred years. Um, I, and I find in myself a passion for, for that, seeing that, that growth and that, that increase in, in knowledge and, and as small as it is compared to what, what God knows, at the end of the age, will all of that be lost? Is that a waste? Is that something that um, is, is purposeless? Only for the sake of, of human, you know, human achievement, for the sake of human achievement, I can understand would be a waste. Without God, it's, it's worth nothing. But as believers, as someone who, you know, if I believe I'm a believer, I believe I'm going to go into eternity with that knowledge. Will there be any value to that at all? So when we're resurrected, uh, will there be iPods? <laughs> 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 you know, I'll just, I don't know. You know, it's, it's. I have no idea what it's going to be like uh, when God finally just kind of establishes the heavens and the earth the way he wants to kind of a thing. Um, it's, it's an interesting fact. The ancient Greeks didn't really have a view of the afterlife. Um, and so glory in this life was what it was all about. And I think what it shows is we're wired up for glory. And if we believe in God, we understand that's where the glory is going to come from. If we don't believe in God, it's like I have to leave a legacy. I have to leave, make a name for myself. I have to do, and so a lot of human achievement springs from that. I think sometimes Christians can go too far and look down on technology. And technology does a lot to, to help people, you know, and we should care about people. But whether this kind of development of technology is, is going to just kind of be for naught, I have no idea. That's an interesting question. So I've kind of looked at it, too. Like um, I remember reading a book in college where this uh, man was thinking about, okay, um, he became a believer later on in life and was an architect, was building bridges and things like that, and uh, came to study the Bible and came to the realization that the only real things that I know that are eternal are the Word of God and the soul of man, and decided that, well, you know, I can spend the rest of my life doing these things that maybe aren't going to be around, maybe are temporal in nature, or I can spend my life doing something that's going to have eternal value. And so, you know, even if a person, you know, is an architect and builds bridges, as a believer, you still know that you're doing things in your life that are eternal in nature and have eternal value. Because like Ken says, there's a lot of things we don't know, um, but there are some things we do. And we do know what some things that are eternal. And so as believers, I think we look at, you know, when Paul shared his testimony to King Agrippa, he said, I got moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. And so in God's perspective, there are two kingdoms. There's, and so the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, is one where there are things that we know are eternal. And as believers, I think we have set focus on what do we know that will last and try to make sure that we have a priority in those areas of our life. And so that would just kind of balance us out in that. The rest of it, sometimes we don't, we don't know for sure. It isn't clear. But those things are clear, so we should focus on them. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you a minute here, and if you want to throw up that videogram, to uh, write down some of your questions if you haven't already. And then when you're done, go ahead and pass those to your left, and we'll collect them at the aisle. So.
Okay, we'll get the lights back up and go ahead and ask one more oral, oral question. All right, I actually have two questions. My name is Jason. <laughs> um, first of all, I want to acknowledge you guys for opening up, open yourselves up to ask questions. I don't know how many hundreds of church services I've sat through wondering if there was going to be a question and answer time. So <laughs> I know it, it's you're very brave to just be willing to take questions. The first question is actually for Kelly. <laughs> I've got $20 for the basketball tournament to bet this next month for the college. Um, my question for you is, who's going to win? Um, if in, the, your, in your consultations with God. Okay. <laughs> um, I actually haven't answered that. If the Ducks shoot like they did yesterday, they have a good shot at it. Okay. But uh, my pick would be Ohio State because they have the big man, and he can be pretty tough. So I put your money on that, Jason. Okay. No. <clears throat> the second question is, more, you know, I think what, you know, I'm dealing with and certainly much of our world's dealing with, and it's, it's kind of a Christianity Today kind of question, and that is in terms of global warming and, and uh, much of the talk which is going on in our world about our environment. And, and it's pretty clear in the scientific community right now that there's some significant changes going on, and by the time our middle schoolers are the age of the grandparents in the room, there's going to be, you know, serious warming of the planet you know, droughts, um, changes of species, loss of species, and, you know, it's going to be a lot different place if we continue how we're going. So my question is, in terms of Christianity, you know, many people can look to the end times and say, this is evidence the end times are coming, this is portrayed in Revelation. Or, you know, this, this could be just man's ignorance of, of, of taking care of the place he lives. So my question for you is, in terms of Christianity, what do you see as the, the response for Christians, for people today in terms of this? Is this something that, this is this the end times, that, that the, you know, this is the, the result of hundreds of years of sin that we've got, you know, and there's nothing we can really do about it? Or is this something that's like, you know, this is, we are to be stewards of our planet and take care of it and make sure there's doves and fig trees for our kids you know, so our great grandkids can know what a dove is that Noah, yeah. you know, had in the ark and fig trees. You know, I'm just yeah. And that those are a couple of extremes, but what do you see? You, what do you see you, as the role of you fish? Yeah, I so. think that um, it's interesting that question because I mean, Ken and I haven't had a chance to sit down and try to agree or disagree on answers. So we might not. I think we kind of agree on this, but he kind of mentioned that before about we're a steward. But I would say that my view of that's changed a lot that I was kind of, um, you know, growing up in a very right-wing conservative environment, you know, always looked at the environmental movement as this political left-wing group that I wanted nothing to do with. And as a Christian, you know, they, the other things they stood for, I didn't agree with. And so I had that was going on in my mind. As I've gotten older, I've realized that there's a lot of truth, maybe the radicalism I'm not for, but as Christians, we're a steward of the planet. And I think we have responsibility to be involved in those things when it comes to like recycling and all of the things that we can do to, to help our environment. We need to do that. I think when it comes to the end times, those things are going to happen. If you look at the earth and all the things, they're going to happen because God's going to take care of that. And, you know, I don't think we're looking at it. Well, we're going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy because we're going to, you know, the ozone layer is going to be gone. Therefore, the planet's going to burn up. And that fits into Revelation. I just kind of think if God wants that to happen, he'll make it happen his own way. So I think we have a responsibility for that. Um, and I've, 
you know, as I've gotten older, I, I, I see more of that responsibility. And instead of like just abuse or use the planet, we need to look for alternative fuel sources and all of those things so that our kids grow up in a place that is a healthy place to live and that. Um, and that's why I believe in catch and release in uh, fly fishing because if we let the little ones go back, they'll get bigger. And then we let the big ones go back, they'll get bigger. There'll be more fish to catch instead of just taking them out, putting them in your freezer, realizing, oh, I got fish in my freezer, and at the end of the year, you throw them away because you never eat them. So just leave them in there and learn to fly fish. It's easier to let them go, and the environment will be a better place to live. I think if we use common sense on that question and, and stop treating it like a political question, we'll be a lot better off. Yeah. Uh, there's an extreme side. There's also an ignorant side, and we do need to do some work there. You know. So. Thanks. What, uh, what are you guys studying now uh, on your own for self-improvement? Wow. <laughs> studying on my own. And how much can you bench press was the second question. Uh, <laughs> can I give it in like, eh, never mind. You take oh. the second question, I'll take the first. <laughs> sure. We don't have all day. All right. Uh, what are we? What are we studying? Uh, I am. Uh, you know, there's an opportunity for something funny here, and I can't find it. Um, but uh, actually, this week, what I've been thinking about is uh, the need for church humility. Like as a church and, and as a pastor, you kind of end up realizing that means you got to be at the front of that train. Um, and I don't claim to be. I used to joke about you know, I was the most humble man in the world. If you want to know, I'll just ask me and I'll tell you all about it. Um, but I'm, I'm not the most humble person in the world, but I've just been doing a lot of thinking this week in particular that, uh, man, churches need to have a lot of humility. And so actually, it's kind of a self-improvement thing. But. Yeah, and me, I've been uh, like reading through the Minor Prophets, um, great stuff on just um, how they viewed what was going on, what God was saying, speaking through them, and especially about God's character. Um, so... Um, those are just things, just trying to, you know, have a consistent, quiet time. And I have a men's group that's one of the areas they hold us accountable for is how's your quiet time, how you doing in that. Um, so um, that's quite, kind of what I've been doing. 300 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 301. <laughs> yeah. Using the analogy of people drowning in the ocean and God throwing us Jesus uh, life preservers, once one is pulled into the boat uh, by the Jesus life preserver, can they fall back into the water? Uh, quick answer is this. There's two camps, and this is theological words, but Calvinism after John Calvin, Armenianism after Jacob Arminius. Uh, and the one says, once saved, always saved, period. The other one says, if you choose your way in, you can choose your way out. Um, at the end of the day, like if somebody's really living like they're not a Christian, what the Calvinist is going to say, you know what, that person was never saved to begin with. Uh, the Armenian is going to say, wow, they're in dangerous, they're, they're, they're on thin ice. Um, but it, they're saying the same thing. This person, by the fruit evidenced in their life, is in, in shaky ground and doesn't have a lot of assurance. And I think what Jesus taught is you will be, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And I think... Um, Whatever the theological view going on, uh, if we really are in love with God, that fruit's going to manifest itself, and, and that's the real issue. So, Okay, and um, we'll do one more. 
Should we feel guilty about causing another believer to stumble when we are doing something we don't believe is wrong? I think uh, if you study, especially uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians and Romans, they had issues in their day uh, eating meat. Like the Corinthian church had a problem with eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And they would have like in their pagan temple, they had all this meat that was brought in. In the back of that, they had like a little supermarket and they would actually sell it off. And so meat's meat. And so Paul basically wrote this to these believers in Corinth. Some of them who were saved out of that paganism, if they knew that steak was offered to a pagan idol, they would go, whoa, my conscience would be violated. I would totally can't eat this. Paul would basically, his perspective was, hey, guess what? Meat's meat. So as a believer, I think what we have to learn how to do is how to understand who is the weaker brother. And then if we're in that situation where we're with somebody who's maybe grown up, maybe in an alcoholic family, where alcohol to them is a total evil, and for them even to be around it or drink, it would be wrong for them to do that then we who maybe have freedom in that area would need to say, you know something, for the sake of this brother, I am not even going to bring it up. I'm not even going to go there. I'm not going to offer anything to this person. I'm going to be sensitive to the weaker brother. And so, yeah, I, th- I think there is that part in your life where you have to be sensitive to those people who are, have, are weak in certain areas of their life and limit your own liberty. That's a sign of maturity is being able to step back and say, you know, I don't need to do this because of my brother here. I just want to be sensitive toward their needs, whatever that might be. Because what could be sin for them might not be sin for you. And the scripture clearly teaches that, that this person has total freedom in this area. This person doesn't. And it could be a lot of different things, not just drinking, not necessarily food. It could be food items. It might be, you know, gambling, you know. It might be something like that where one person has the freedom to, hey, you know, we're a bunch of guys getting together. We're going to play Texas Hold'em. Somebody else, they have a problem with that. You know, they're, in, you know, Gamblers Anonymous. To them, to get involved in gambling leads them down, you know, the slippery slope where they don't want to go. Then if you knew that, you got to be careful of those situations. And therefore, you need to be able to look at that situation and hold your liberty um, for the sake of love for your brother. And so, yeah, those are sensitive well, issues, but clearly tough. What's Texas holding? I don't know, Ken. I don't know. <laughs> Well, thanks a lot. I'm glad you don't know that, Ken. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I know a lot of you didn't get your questions answered, and we would love to continue this dialogue. So if uh, you you wanted to continue to to do that, you can ask any of us questions either after the service this morning or shoot us an email and contact us. We hope you've enjoyed this morning. We hope that you see that Antioch is a church where we really want to be open and honest and uh, allow all of us to have an environment that's safe where we can ask questions. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and bring up the music and uh, do a special number and we're also going to take the offering so if you want to uh, in your bulletins is the connecting card if you just throw that in there um, we'd love to get to know you a little better so thanks again for uh, being here and hopefully we'll do it again sometime soon hello everyone my name is Lauren Edwards this is my husband Ben (laughs) he's getting some stuff ready and it has been just awesome to be here today. It's um, been a really kind of a emotional experience for me just because um, a lot of the questions that everybody asks have been questions on my heart, and I'm sure that that has been the experience for probably most of us here. Um, you know, we're human beings. We're always going to have those questions. We're always going to ask the why. But for me personally, it's so comforting that I can walk out of this building today and know that I have one answer, and that is Jesus Christ in my heart. 
And a lot of times when I have those questions that just so de don't seem to be answered or at least answered to my satisfaction, that is something that I can hold on to. My husband and I just recently returned from Uganda, Africa. Went over there this summer. And uh, I went over there to sing with the band that was ministering uh, during a festival. And while people came for medical care, we, we sang to them. My husband went uh, as a photographer. We had an incredible experience there. Um, my experience being a singer over there um, at first was a little bit frustrating because there was, of course, the language barrier. We're singing to them in English, and a lot of them don't speak English, and so it was you know, an interesting sound to them, but they weren't really getting the message, the message of Jesus that we had come to bring. And so... The group of us who were in the band sat down with a man who spoke very good English, and we started translating our songs. It was a humongous process, but one that I just enjoyed. Probably one of the, one of the sweetest times in my life so far. So I'd like to share with you a song about that one answer that we have today, that we walk out with today. And I'd like to sing it to you in a teso, which is an African language, and also in English, so that you know what I'm saying. So I just hope you enjoy the song. I hope it blesses you. 